This might just be my favorite conversation I've ever had with a fellow female filmmaker. This is part two of a three-part series that was recorded live at Production Connect. We had an indie film night there in August. It was so much fun. I got to co-host with the award-winning filmmaker and founder of Production Connect, Andrew Sandler. And in this conversation, we chat with Quinn Shepard. Quinn's directorial debut feature film, Blame, which she made when she was 19. She wrote it, produced it, edited it, starred in it. It landed Quinn the title of being the youngest female film director to ever have their film screen at Tribeca Film Festival, which led to Quinn signing with UTA and developing multiple projects and eventually following up with her second feature film, Not Okay, starring the amazing Zoe Dutch. Again, as in part one, I know you'll forgive us for the quality of the audio, which isn't always perfect, but I know the quality of the information, the quality of the conversation is going to be so valuable and insightful for you. I'm really excited for you to get to dive into this. This powerhouse of a filmmaker is a 2018 Forbes 30 Under 30 list maker, and Quinn is also now in post-production for a Hulu miniseries called Under the Bridge, which she wrote and produced based on a true story. And I know that there's so much more to come from this very talented woman. I can't wait for you to get an insight into her process and her experiences. Also, here's to experiencing more women break out in this industry, make really cool shit, and then talk about the process. This is something that I really love about Quinn. She's so open and real and humble and just creative, like it pours out of her. I'm really excited for you to get to experience that. So without further ado, let's dive in. Have an amazing time. I'll catch you soon. I'll catch you on the other side. Bye. Please welcome Quinn Shepard. Thank you for coming, Quinn. Oh Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. All right, so you 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 co-wrote this, you starred in it, you directed it, you produced it, you also worked on an original song for it. Am I right? Oh, wow. <laughs> I did. I wrote a couple. I. I wrote this song that's playing in the trailer with my uh, composer and I wrote we wrote a couple of the songs together yeah Incredible. And also Quinn Shepard was is the youngest film female filmmaker to have ever screened a feature film at Tribeca Film Festival yeah. So talk to us about your path as a filmmaker. How did you get started? So I, I mean this, the film that we just watched the trailer for Blame was like truly like the beginning of my career, like uh, at, behind the camera. I started acting when I was really, really young. My mom had always, you know, my mom was an actress and she had like pursued acting and learned like so much about the industry. She started me in acting like very young, like I was, I was four years old when I did my first movie. Um, but my, my parents weren't like, we weren't necessarily like a super industry family. Like I grew up in, in a very small town in New Jersey, which is like where I shot my first film. Um, but I like, being on film sets felt normal to me, even though it was only like a small piece of my life growing up. Like I wasn't like a wildly successful kid actor, but I loved being on a film set. I like associated it with like the happiest 
times in my life. And when I started making like short films and doing like film classes when I was really young, like 12, 13, 14 years old, it was just like my safe space. Like I hated being in school. I didn't do a lot of extracurriculars, but when I would do those classes, I would be like, this is so much fun and where I meant to be. And so I just like knew I wanted to move into being behind the camera. Um, and I actually wrote the script for my first film, like started writing it when I was a teenager. And I just like knew that that was the thing that I wanted to make. Uh, I don't even think I knew when I was writing it that I even could direct it because I knew I wanted to in my heart, but I was like, who's gonna let me, a child, direct a movie? Because you were 15 when you started writing the film. Right? I was, wow. yeah. I actually used writing the film to like convince my high school to let me graduate early because I like set it so that I was getting credits to like <laughs> work on a screenplay. It really felt like I was like playing <laughs> a major scheme against the school with that. Um, and then they let me film the yeah, movie I was there. Say, they let you film the whole thing there. Yeah, and That's I was like, amazing. well, remember when I was writing it as part of one of your classes? And like, they never asked to read the script. Like, <laughs> a fairly controversial movie to shoot a year old high school. I was thinking that too. I was like, how did you get this approved? They didn't check? No one asked. When I was like, hey, do you want me to, can I shoot a movie? We have no money. I am a child. Can I shoot a movie here? And they were like, yeah, okay. And I think they just thought, like, they just were like, I think I said, like, it's anti-bullying. And they were like, yeah. <laughs> I just didn't clarify, like, what the bullying was about. So and we just didn't need to mention the topics too much. Wow, it's so good. I'm so, I, I really want to ask about the color worlds because I feel like they're so specific to the characters. Like you, watching this film, every character has their own kind of uh, experience and color and feel and tone. And even with like the early shots of the teacher um, who's brilliantly cast Chris Messina, like I think that's such a good casting because he's so freaking likable. Um, the shots of him in his kitchen, they're all from the same angle. There, there's something so distinct about every the way that every character gets their moment on screen. I'm wondering, I mean, that is so sophisticated for an early filmmaker to go through. How did you find that language? And was that organic? And was that something that you thought, how is this all gonna live together? Or you just were like, I'm going with my gut, I'm trusting this. I, I think, I'm so glad you bring this up because I, I do think I was like obsessive about color in the film to the point where I was like probably wasting a bit of energy, right. like making sure that like the color red was isolated only in specific scenes. And like, I was like, no, that background actor cannot wear this shirt because the shirt <laughs> yeah. is red and, and that sort of thing. But I, um, my cinematographer, Erin uh, Kowalczyk, is incredible. I actually met him because he had shot a short film for a friend of mine and, and uh, I thought he was incredibly talented. He and I worked a ton together in prep because we didn't really have a real prep for the film. It was very, very, very low budget. So we didn't really have like m money to have crew on before shooting started. So it was really like just us and then my mom who produced the film with me. Um, and I, as I was developing the characters, and again, I was working on the script from the time I was a kid, so it was kind of my escape. Like I would come home from school and be like, I don't wanna do homework, I wanna work on my <laughs> script and like make my little mood boards. Um, I like had really, really vivid color palettes and like language in mind and like the character of Melissa is like a cheerleader and is like very angry and her character is like quite like sexual but also very like 
passionate and very sharp and, and very smart. And there's like, I, to me, it's something very modern about the character. And so there was a lot of like very modern and bright and bold colors like in her palette, whereas the character that I played of Abigail, I think was like rooted in almost trying to live in the past mm. and like evoke a feeling of the past. It was all these like very earthy tones. Very muted, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, it was so um, beautiful. Oh, thank you. Yeah. But yes, it was all, it was very, very, very particular. <laughs> but I'm sure I drove everyone insane yeah. doing it. The casting of this film was incredible. Uh, talk to us about how you went about casting. And for a low budget film, um, I heard somewhere that you wrote a letter to Chris Messina to uh, convince him to be in your film. Do you want to talk to us about that? I did. <laughs> I had never met Chris. Um, I truly had met like two people who vaguely knew him, but not even enough to have his email. So I was like, whew, I'm gonna use those connections as much as I can in this letter. Um, it was funny, my mom and I watched the Mindy Project together. And we had also, we were both really big fans of Away We Go, like Sam Mendes' film. And he's amazing in that movie. And I saw it when I was so young, and I remember when we were, when I was, working on the script, my mom was like, my mom did a lot of the casting on the, on the film, or she did the casting on the film. And she was like, this has got to be Chris Messina. And it was funny, we would watch it on the mini project, and we were like, I, she's had a vision. And I was like, I believe it. And I, I like started to really like get obsessed with it. And then we would like talk in my house, in our house, like, oh, like when Chris Messina does the movie, like not thinking it would ever really happen. And, I knew someone who had been at a party where his wife, who's an incredibly accomplished producer, had been, and she gave out her card. And this person sent me her card. It was like, I have at least Jennifer's uh, email. And so I sent her an email that said, please forward this to Christmas. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> and it was truly like a full-blown cold offer letter and a link to the one short film that I had made, like, and just a huge like description of like the exact qualities that he had as a person and as an actor that made him the only person that we wanted for the film. And he literally emailed me back and was like, yeah, let's get coffee. And I happened to be in LA and I literally like full body sweating, like yeah. panic attack, like, oh my God, what? Went and had coffee with him. He was like, yeah, like let's make it work. And I, I, to this day, I just can't, like I saw him like a year ago and I, I said, Chris, like, do you understand that you did a movie being directed by, at the time when I met him, I was 19, a, a movie that I was directing for under $200,000 at my old high school in New Jersey and you said yes to this and you literally helped me get my entire career because you putting yourself in this film helped people take it seriously from yeah. then on. Like that, to me, is like a true actor who supports indie filmmaking. Yeah, that's so true. That's awesome. <laughs> and I, yeah. 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 Like, honestly, he's a good guy. So that's so interesting you say that, because I'm so curious about the fact that you did have this like really high caliber cast, but you only shot for 19 days. How was that scheduling? How was that uh, experience? Was it tough, or was it like you knew exactly what you wanted to get? There was a scary moment where we thought we were going to lose Chris That's because right. of his scheduling, um, because he literally had jobs back to back. So we actually had him for seven days out of the 19. And we just like condensed it all. So even some of the classroom scenes, we actually hired an actor 
to play his role with the kids, like with, with all the cast in the classroom for additional coverage. So we would, we would shoot two cameras when he was there. We would have one camera on him. Sometimes we'd have a second size on him. Sometimes we did a lot of improv. So we would try if we were gonna have an actor improving with him to always cover them when Chris was there. Mm -hmm. And then for all of the additional like looks and exchanges and like stuff going on in the back of the classroom while he's up there, like all of that was done when there was a different actor actually playing his role who would fill in and, and do his sort of off camera wow. lines. Um, and we just had to block shoot all of his stuff. But it was, it was definitely hard, but I think it's pretty wild that we managed to get, like he is in the majority of the film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was sort of, it was the only choice we had. I think when, it, when we heard it, we were like, oh, I don't know if we can shoot you out in seven days. But I don't think we have an another option. Wait, like, and that we was gotta like have you. The, the, one, of the, one of the things that was difficult, but I read that you had funding, and then the week that you were supposed to start shooting, your funding fell through, and you had to figure out how to get this film made. I can't believe that. Tell <laughs> yeah. us about that story. Yeah, I definitely think like, and I'm sure, I mean, it was funny, I was literally just chatting with Brandon, like, I, I love talking to other filmmakers who like make their first film at such a, like, when it is very much like a self-created process of, you go through the experience of going everything that could possibly go wrong does, yeah. and then you feel very alone in it until you realize that kind of everyone goes yeah. through that. Um, we, yeah, we, I had a, it was actually a, a director that I had done a, a movie with as an actress who had been starting like a film financing group and was investing in like seven films and agreed to finance the film. And we had a lawyer and all contracts and like it was very, it felt very above board. And then he just ghosted us like the day of like the rescheduled wire transfer. And we were fully in prep so we had crew flown in and we were like, we had gear trucks and like we, we were like literally days before shooting um, and it was it was really frightening because I truly remember my mom and I were standing in the kitchen and trying to decide because we were like we're never gonna have all of these people all this like the crew and the cast and all the people that we want to do this at the same time ready to do this again especially not at this budget level um, and so what do we do and I, at the time, had not made a decision yet on if I wanted to go to college. And so I was like, guess I'm not going to college. <laughs> so, so because I had acted as a kid, I had like saved like every penny that I made as a child actor and like kind of my whole life. And my mom had really, like my parents had really helped me put all of that money away. And I used that college fund towards the film. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so you might actually say, <laughs> don't know like, that I can endorse self-financing because yeah. <laughs> it's like maybe the riskiest possible choice. In my case, we were able to recoup all the costs in the end by the time we sold the film. But yeah, it's scary. Wow. <laughs> it's a, I don't know if I can endorse it, but it, it's what I did. <laughs> you made it work. And also, that's like the best college you could possibly have, right? Yeah, it was college and grad school. Yeah. <laughs> You said you made this render 200K, which is absolutely crazy because it doesn't look like uh, a low-budget film at all. It looks like a high-budget film. How did you pull that off to like get the look like that? I think it was, I mean, it was definitely a testament to like the talent we had in the 
artistic departments on the on the film. Like everyone was working their butts off to make like such a small amount of money for each department budget work. Um, I think I'm also just like I just came in as like a full blown camera snob apparently. So I was like I'm only shooting on the Ari Alexa. And it's like you have eight thousand dollars. <laughs> and so I just like wrote to Panavision and was like, hey. Any chance you want to give us an Ari Alexa for $8,000 for a whole shoot? And like genuinely ended up finding a woman at Panavision who was like, you know what? Yeah, yes. we're going to help you out. Yes. <laughs> that is awesome. And I, I, I think it was a lot of that. Like the f making the first film definitely enforced in me that I was like, I can never ask anyone for a favor ever again, because I've <laughs> cashed in on every favor I will ever be able to ask for for this movie. Um, but I had so much support. We had so much support from uh, companies that were, that seemed like they were charmed by how tiny the project was, like the story of how it was getting made. And so from like gear to like finishing the film, post-production and all of that, we had a lot of major companies like Panavision that decided to give us, I, what I would say is like, it's not a grant, but it was sort of a grant of like doing us major favors, like cutting their normal budgeting down by 80%, truly just because we were so transparent about what we wanted and why we were so passionate about the film. And I think it's shocking that there, there are like, even in big companies, like there are a lot of people who really want to support small films and like help them get made. And so that's why I'm like, there's no harm in asking. Like there's yeah. never any harm in asking. Uh, Cause you never, oh. I want to know what the process was like starring in the film and directing yourself. Cause obviously you didn't have all the time in the world to be on camera and then go watch playback after every take, right? So Definitely what not. was that process like for you? <laughs> Yeah, it was incredibly hard. I didn't do it on my next film. Uh, I was like, please, God, no, I don't want to do this again. It was really hard. I felt like I, in a weird way, like I, I did what I wanted to as an actor in this film, and then I felt like I was kind of done with acting after it. Like, I felt like I told a story that was personal for me, and then I was kind of good. But yeah, it was, it was incredibly hard, especially in the ensemble scenes, not being able to be on monitor. And in some ways, I felt like I was directing with like one arm tied behind my back. Um, so even though I'm glad that I was able to play the role in the film, it definitely like enforced in me wanting to just be able to focus on being behind the camera on like the next mm -hmm. handful of things that I did. You must have had a lot of trust in your DP. I truly did. <laughs> I really trusted him with, with everything. And yeah, you, you can't watch yourself. Also, then you're also like, God, what if I'm bad in this? Yeah. <laughs> like you just don't know. You have to trust your gut and if you're right and also like, you know, my mom would be on monitor and she'd be like, that was a good take. Or like, no, we need to yeah. <laughs> This moment could have been done with dialogue, but you chose to do it through a beautiful montage sequence. Why did you make that choice? I think I like to have these little like music videos in, in it's, that's, it was funny to me when Brandon was talking about having like a music video moment where I think it's like an accidental signature that I do where like, I just like to, sit in visuals and music sometimes. Um, and to me, like, it's obviously out of context. It, it, it doesn't necessarily mean anything, but I think what the film is attempting to say about, um, like, the way we pit women against each other and, like, weaponize their sexuality in that sort of 
kind of forced onto and internalized by women at this age, like teenage girls. Mm -hmm. I think this scene to me is like so much about that. And when you see it like in the context of like knowing what has happened and then what is to come with the characters, it's sort of like a turning point, which I didn't mm -hmm. think necessarily needed dialogue. Um, but it is, I think, about power. And it's also a moment where like our villain is is moving into a place of power over our victim, but it's also the film is going to subvert that and play with that as well. Um, but I thought, I honestly think this is a fun one to talk about because this sequence seems very simple, but it has some of the most like insane production elements around it. Like part one is that the footage of the football game, but also the footage of me biking, is shot over a year before the movie because we had gotten, um, when I was shooting uh, my first short film, and it was the same DP, we were testing out different Blackmagic cameras. And we were honestly trying to see if a Blackmagic could imitate film to the capacity that like an Alexa could. And so we decided to do a camera test with the uh, Ursa, which I don't know if that's like still a thing, but at the time it was like a, a newer camera. Um, and so we were doing a camera test, and there was a football game coming up at my school. And I was like, we're never going to get this production value if it's on us to have this amount of people here. Um, so I was like, let's go shoot uh, a football game. Like, let's just go shoot it, and like, let's shoot the real cheerleaders, and like, let's do all of this. We actually shot all this B-roll that obviously we don't use because it's not our actors um, of the real cheerleaders that I then used to cut a sizzle reel together for the film and use to help get people interested in the movie. Like that went to Chris and that went to like anyone we were hiring on the film, all of the actresses, like agents, like everyone got like a three minute cut of, you know, real Metuchen high cheerleaders <laughs> dancing and me biking and, you know, this sort of stuff we shot. Um, in addition, the day that we were supposed to shoot our version of the football game, the dancers were booked on a on the day, and then they were rescheduled because of weather, and then they were rescheduled back, um, which translated into none of our dancers showed up. Oh. And so dancing on the football field is a number of our young female PAs. <laughs> 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 including a girl who had started as her first day that day. <laughs> and we were like, um, do you want to learn a dance? <laughs> and so they literally had to like learn the choreography, get in uniform, and like, <laughs> she was like, this is an interesting first day as a PA. Um, I just, <laughs> yeah. So it was a lot of stuff like that that I think to me, this is like a great example of like truly what you go through on an indie to make something look uh, seamless, hopefully, in the edit. And I remember like, I think one of the funniest tiny details is that I'm wearing this like brown corduroy jacket in the biking scene because it's supposed to be that my character has like taken this jacket from her teacher and then is wearing it. So this jacket existed before Chris existed. So we were like hoping that the jacket would fit him. <laughs> he tried on the jacket and was like, ooh, is there like a different jacket we could do? And I was like, regrettably no, because we've already shot that scene. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, dumb stuff like that. But that's what movie making is, I guess. Yep. Wow. That is so cool. I mean, the, the mood of this moment too, I mean, it gives us this breath, I think, that we get to absorb what's happening and what's happened. 
I'm really interested to hear you say that it's these musical moments because you do this as well in Not Okay. Um, and I'd love to transition and, and talk about that film. Yeah. Um, and through, so you've made this film, right? You had a smashing success. I also read that you didn't have any money for post-production, so you were literally getting buses across the USA to, right, sleep, like I did my research, sleep on the floor of the basement of your sound designer, right? Like <laughs> I did, did that. sleep in my sound that. mixer's basement. <laughs> Not on the floor, he had a okay, bed. Okay. <laughs> okay. But no door, there was just like, you know, those open stairs, so I would like hear his family having breakfast. <laughs> Hello up there. Yeah. Yeah. But they only spoke French, so. Oh, bullshit, <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. So you obviously went from this really like DIY, by any means necessary, make this film happen, had this incredible success at Tribeca and multiple other festivals, and I imagine like landed distribution and did that whole recoup your funds. How do you go from that to not okay? Or what was this what was the path after that film was made? Did you sit with yourself and have to really consider it or what was next? How did you get there? To be like really like technical about it, uh, when my film was playing Tribeca. I got like approached by some agencies. I signed with WME, who I'm still with. I love my team there. Um, they sort of asked me that question of what do you want to do? I was curious about television at the time. Um, I was like still passionate about film, but I was like, oh, maybe I want to write a TV show. Um, and so I, at the time, the first project I sold after was a TV show that I sold to FX that never went. Um, and I developed that, and then I developed a bunch of other stuff. I had a uh, co-written TV show with Nadia Alexander, the uh, actress from Blame. We co-developed a TV show with a studio called Make Ready that ended up also being the studio on Not Okay. Um, and other stuff that's escaping me right now because yeah. it's been a minute. Um, but basically was like juggling a lot of different developments and kind of putting a lot of energy into them and, and seeing what stuck. And Not Okay was funny because I wrote the script as part of a, it was like a blind deal actually. It was like a deal that I had done with this studio Make Ready. Um, sort of based on blame and based on them like wanting to, to explore doing a project together um, without a concept attached to it. And I had the idea and I was like, they're gonna think I'm truly insane because I'm about to pitch them like a pretty controversial concept. And I pitched them the movie and they liked it and they were like, sure, let's, I guess let's develop this crazy script. Um, and then I had it with them for a while and I don't think I necessarily knew, like I didn't necessarily choose that that would be the next thing that I made. Like in some ways I actually expected there to be other projects I had in development to be my next film. And it wasn't that I didn't like love Not Okay, but I had kind of no way of knowing because it ends up becoming what is topical, what somebody wants to put money behind, like what sticks. And I think Not Okay was so out there in concept that it kept becoming more relevant just as we kept thinking it was about to die. Like every time I thought the movie was gonna die because it was like becoming irrelevant because so much of it had to do with like stuff going on socially and culturally and politically, then something else would happen and make it more relevant than ever and there would be like a renewed interest in it. And that's how it ultimately landed with Searchlight um, solely because they had gotten the ability to do distribution with Hulu and we were one of the first two films that they did through that. So when we took our first meeting with Searchlight, they didn't even really 
know, or we weren't even really talking about Hulu distribution as an option. So we didn't even know that it would be on the table for them. And then one of my producers brought it up on the meeting, and that's sort of what ended up happening. What was your experience writing this film? It, weirdly, I think this was one of the fastest scripts that I wrote, um, in that once I kind of hit what it was, it kind of flowed. Like, it felt personal and also not at the same time, if that makes sense. Like, I was, I was angry, I think, a lot about things that were happening in the world, and, and it, it's a funny and dark movie, and I think it allowed me to, like, channel my frustrations at things, like gun violence and, like, politics that were pissing me off, and just, like, I don't know, performative wokeness and all of that, and just, like, channel yeah. all the frustration I was having, like, into a script that was also, like, ridiculous and funny and slapsticky and... Mm. All of that. By the way, how funny is it Miranda's film is I'm totally fine. <laughs> I know. Not okay. I know. <laughs> Did you do that? It's a complete coincidence. I think one thing you nailed with this film so effortlessly is the tone of it, right? Because if you pitch me the log line, it could have easily been pitched as a drama, right? So how did you kind of come up with the, the tone and style for this um, and having it be comedic while still being heartfelt and dramatic? I've always really loved movies that like take you on like a big tonal ride when you're watching them. Like I think of films like American Beauty, Blind Spotting, like Sorry to Bother You, like there's I mean there's so many. But films that like kind of pull you into one movie that you kind of believe that you're in from the beginning and then there's like a, a, a big pivot partway through. Um, and for me, I, I was very interested in making a movie that you could kind of market sort of bubblegummy, like a movie that you're like, oh, it's about Instagram fame and about a girl like wants to be in Paris, like the most kind of basic <laughs> like fantasy of like what being fun and having an important life must be. And then sort of like the weirdest, most twisted lie that she ends up dropping into has like very real life consequences. And obviously like the, the trailer doesn't reveal it all, but the movie takes quite a serious turn. Um, like once she meets Rowan and kind of starts to face the reality of like what actually being a survivor is and that she sort of has no idea what she's co-opting, like what she stepped into. Um, and I think for me, it's like about the fact that like the film deep down is about like a lot of topics about like mental health and, and privilege and like performativity on the internet. Um, but I think we're used to seeing those things turned into like cute clickbait, like or like people on TikTok making videos where like they're dealing with like a, I don't know, a, a depressive period by being like, eh, look at me cleaning my room. Like I think we, I was writing it when I was in this period of like, oh my God, like I'm going on my phone and I'm seeing like, I don't know, makeup tutorials, and then I'm literally scrolling, and the next thing is like a headline about kids killed in a school shooting, and then the next thing is like global warming crisis, and then the next thing is like an ad, and then a video of a baby duckling, and it's just like, <laughs> the, I couldn't like handle the, the, the cognitive dissonance of it. It was so overwhelming, and I was like, it would be fun to try to capture that feeling in a movie where there's this sort of whiplash of like, total ridiculousness, like what Dylan O'Brien's character is, which is like pretty much the comic relief of the film and like so kind of over the top, larger than life. But then also to have like this, like some very grounded, very human scenes in the movie that are very real because I feel like that is what the internet has become is that, that like shock of that. 
That's where I was at when I was writing it. Wow, it's, it's so funny to hear you put that so succinctly because I think that this film, and I think it was Promising Young, Young Woman, it was like two films over the last couple of years that I finished the film and I literally just like pressed play immediately again and was like, I have to watch this again. There was something about it that was so um, evocative that felt really current, that felt really like speaking into a lot of the frustrations that I feel like so many of us have or we should have at least. Um, what was it like for you as a director going from something, I mean, and obviously you had years of developing other projects, but this was maybe the first time you'd been back on set yeah. and you'd gone from a very different budget situation, a very different scope. What was that like? It was really scary. I was totally terrified. Like when we fully went into prep, it was, it's very fast. Like. When Zoe's deal closed, it was like an immediate trigger where then you have your money and you have your fun. We, we were like in prep within a week of Zoe's deal closing for Not Okay. And so I literally was like, oh, I, I got to get an apartment. Like I was in a cabin in upstate New York. I was like, I got I to gotta like get back to the city and, and start prep. Um, but it was really scary. I called a lot of... Uh, I called and, and emailed a lot of like my filmmaker friends for advice, uh, trying to find like anyone who had done anything on a studio level, anyone who had graduated from like an indie to a studio film, um, and they all sort of were like, just like you have to trust your gut, like it's going to be the same, just bigger, uh, and it was in a weird way. Like I think that's comforting, and that's what I would say to somebody who called me and asked me the same questions, which is like it wasn't that different. It's just that there were people who were better at their jobs. <laughs> like, we had crew that was not doing their position for the first right. time. <laughs> um, but like, overall, the, the experience was very similar. I was like, I had an office, and I had a team 10 weeks, in, uh, 10 weeks before, as opposed to the day it started, yeah. um, and stuff like that. That was really nice. But it's, it, it's quite similar in the day-to-day -day on set. Like, I don't know that there's ever a day on a set at any budget where it doesn't feel a bit like a crisis. Um, and I was really struck by how not different it was when I was on like shooting days, like when we were in it. Like, even if we were shooting in a location that like I knew, because we're in you know, Brooklyn or Manhattan, like I know we're in a location that costs a fortune, but the actual like play-by-play -play of hour by hour, shooting the scenes and how the scenes flow and directing, it, it wasn't nearly as different as I expected it to be. And so even though it was scary, I think once I got into it, I like learned to trust myself. Well, I want to open it up to some questions now. Anybody's got it right over here. I was just curious about, uh, you know, when a, when a project, especially the first feature, spends time in development, right? Like, um, there are so many opportunities, speaking of trusting your gut, there are so many opportunities to second-guess yourself, kind of like shape shift the project, almost contort it out of like shape to the point where it's unrecognizable. How are you able to sort of maintain your vision for today specifically or any other project that you've had along gestation period? It's, it's interesting because Blame is the only thing I've ever made that didn't have executives on it, um, which I think is a, a huge factor in being able to stay like very, very true to your vision. Like Blame was a script that had no financier or like studio notes on it. Um, so even though it changed a lot, they were notes that were coming from like my mom or my friends or the actors who were acting in the movie. Um, 
they weren't notes that were financially motivated, and I think that made a really big difference. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it was it was I was so protective over it, it being my first film, and I sort of weirdly had like a knowledge somewhere deep down that it would be the only time I ever had the chance to do that, that I think any time there would be like an outside person who'd want to be like, you should put in more sex scenes or something, I'd be like, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's move on. Um, but then on Not Okay, obviously like, when you, when you have more money to make a film, you have way more input. And so even though the first draft of that film was sort of like one of the fastest scripts I've written and it came out of me very easily. Um, it went through a tremendous amount of development and it went through development at uh, Studio and then it went through development at Searchlight. And I mean, Searchlight is, uh, in my opinion, like one of the best in the game, like has some of the best executives. And even then, you still are, are going to be in months of notes and questions and arguments and emails. And like, I, I think that it's so important, like especially as people talk about development hell and like sitting in that, that especially projects that develop with like multiple companies over time, like say you're with one studio and then it gets dropped by that studio and you sell it to a new studio or a new producer. I think it is important at a certain point to know like where your boundaries are, what your vision is, and you have to just, I think, trust your gut. I mean, I, I am like, <laughs> I fight very hard, probably too hard sometimes when I really believe in something. Um, and I think that is important, though sometimes you feel so annoying when you're doing it, because you're like, I'm sure they just want me to take their notes. But sometimes when you believe in something, there will be like a joke that ends up, you know, there's, there's lines and not okay that I think, in my opinion, are some of the best lines of the film that I had to make arguments towards. And in the end, everyone was able to agree and everyone on the team was able to see, ah, oh, that's why it's there. But I think if you don't have that gut, it can get slowly eroded by development. <laughs> even with the best, like even truly with the best teams, I think there's still so many voices and so many opinions, and there's so many people thinking about money and marketing. And I think it's important to like set your boundaries and know what you want. Hi. Hi. I'm very curious about your kind of in the moment directing when you've gone through months of notes and you're thinking about the money have the very real pressures of the film industry on you, and your films are about serious subjects that are very real to the people who are going to be watching them, but you have to live in a fantasy world because it's film. It has to be magical and beautiful for the people who are moving the thing with you. How do you find that middle ground as a director? Are you talking to yourself? Are you trusting the people around you? Like, is it day-to-day? -day? Is it this scene requires this uh, conversations with yourself, and then are you thinking about the way you're going to approach each conversation with your actor? Yeah, I'm just... Like... Is that a question? Uh, yeah, no, I'm trying to... I want to make sure I answer the root of it. Like, are you meaning, like, how do you trust yourself that you're going to handle it right on the day? Or do you, do you more mean, like, with the subject matter, how do you trust yourself? I'm, I guess I'm asking, are you thinking day to day how you're going to approach it with yourself? Are you kind of having these conversations with yourself about it, or do you more kind of trust? Uh, no, I. I Goddamn. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think. Just, just say anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's like how, I guess.
guess like where does the belief in yourself come from? Like where does that right? Right. Some, yeah, yeah, yeah. Something along those lines. I don't know. Maybe I'm a narcissist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't That's know what I need to be. Maybe I just have a delusional. I think I've always been a bit like delusionally just believed that I could make film. I don't know why. It's, I don't know why I thought that I could. I, I, that's the weird thing. Sometimes I think what's stopping people um, in certain cases is, is just like a bit of a blind belief in yourself that is probably a bit of ego. Um, but I think in terms of like, do you trust yourself? Like, I, I, in the months and weeks leading up to shooting, probably run it a billion times in my head and think, oh God, am I gonna do this right? And how am I gonna navigate this? And is this scene gonna be complicated? And I'm looking at a blueprint of the location that we're gonna be on. I'm thinking about how many background we're gonna have and how we're gonna choreograph. But when you're in it, you're just in it. It's sort of like a, a sport or like riding a bike. Like I think you just get in it and you just have to like, there's a lot of emotion. You're creating a, a delicate space in which like actors can play and be vulnerable. And in order to get like a beautiful film, you have to have your actors be in a place where they can give you their best. And so you have to be listening to all of your actors and knowing how to like, somebody has one need and somebody else has another need. And like, how do you create a space that addresses both of those? But also then there's like a lightning storm and there's no power for three hours and you're three hours behind and you're like, everyone needs a safe space. And also I have to do these 10 things I remembered with the blueprint, but also now we have no power and we can't film. So I just, like at a certain point, like then you're also just running with it. And you're like cutting shots or changing dialogue. And I don't know, I, maybe that's a terrible piece of advice. To just say, I think you just have to wing it at a certain point, but you can plan ahead. Yeah. It's just in the moment you have to wing it a little bit. Show up and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. follow your gut, I guess. Like, yeah. in the moment, listen to your actors, follow your gut, I guess. Mm -hmm. Wow, any other questions? Yeah, right back. Hi, um, so I know you said that one scene in the game was very much about like pitting young girls' sexuality against each other, but what else inspired I mean, so, <laughs> so Blame is like a, for those, I'm sure many of you have not seen it, um, Blame is like a mod, like a light modern day parable to the Crucible set in a high school um, that's like loosely around like the dynamic between like a girl, the character that I play falls in love with her teacher, and there is another girl uh, in their drama class who's like very jealous and kind of wants to destroy it. And the character that I play is like quite obsessive about literature and like plays and sort of like pretends to be characters from literature to the point where like they're doing the crucible in the drama class and like she start it starts like the whole story starts to mirror the play um and this was inspired by the fact that when i was 15 i did a production of the crucible and got like way too obsessed with it and like <laughs> was just a weirdo and like was wearing like cross necklaces to school and was like I'm going to the woods. <laughs> and, like, and everyone was like, you're crazy. And then I like got obsessed with one of my teachers and was like, hey, like, it just I was just a, a mess. I was a you know a messy, weird, horny 15-year-old girl. Um, and so yeah, I started writing this film. I think I probably started as like fan fiction of my life because I was 15 or 16 years old. And then as I got older, I actually came to understand the topics I was writing about. I think that's what's so like tender about the film to me because the film is like at its core about, about consent and about 
of sexuality in, in young girls and in teenagers. And I think I felt like I could make it because I was portraying the character. Like I was like, well, I'm not gonna ask somebody else to explore this, but if it's me, I can do it. Um, and I, when I was making the movie, I think was the first time that I fully understood how not okay, not okay, um, the, the relationship between the characters was that I was portraying. Like it, I, cause I was growing up while I was making it. And I think in a lot of ways I couldn't make the movie now and I wouldn't be allowed to make the movie now. Like people wouldn't put money behind it and I wouldn't be able to make it without judging it. But I think when I made it, I was making it through a teenager's eyes, which I still think is a valid position to take because it's not like the movie is endorsing the relationship, but it's allowing you to see how a relationship like this feels through a teenager's eyes because it's written by a teenager. And it was made by someone so young that it wasn't until I was sitting there watching my movie that I was like, up, like this is really dark, this is really heavy stuff. And then it made me rethink experiences I had and like kind of see my own relationship with them through a new lens. And so it was like therapy for me, I guess. Yeah, wow. Oh. Well, thank you so much. Um, I wanna leave by asking what is next for you? What are you excited about? Uh, so I think I'm, I'm allowed to say very little, um, but I just finished making with actually Samir here. Uh, we just finished making a TV show for Hulu that's going to be coming out uh, in the next, we don't know, next year I think. Um, but a limited series for Hulu called Under the Bridge. So it's a true story and it's really wild. So check it out. Okay. <laughs> That's a wrap. Thank you for joining me today. I'm sure you really enjoyed that. I certainly enjoyed having this conversation. Um, we've put a bunch of links in the show notes. So if you want to check out Quinn's IMDb, what she's up to, her Instagram, check out Production Connect LA. They do amazing events. I highly recommend following them and checking them out. And if you're in LA, come along. They always put on such fantastic events. And uh, it really is all about connecting with people in the production world. So if you're looking to learn more, break out into that kind of world, that is a great place to start and I'll see you next week for another episode of Production Connect. I'm going to release the opening talk that I did at the event and it's all about micro-budget filmmaking. So I'll see you then. Have an amazing rest of your week and sending lots of love. Go be creative. Bye mate.